1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza haji your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be talking to Professor Magdalena Zabarovska. She is a professor of Afro-American and American Studies and the John Rich Faculty Fellow at the Institute for the Humanities at the University of Michigan. Today, she is here to talk with us about uh, James Baldwin. She wrote a unique book called James Baldwin's Turkish Decade, Erotics of Exile, and she'll be talking to us about James Baldwin 10 years uh, of living in Turkey. Magdalena, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much. Uh,
1: when I'm, I, I'm i am a huge fan of James Baldwin, but up until last year, I had no idea that he had lived in Turkey. Then I realized he lived in Turkey, but I didn't know he stayed 10 years there, which was a formative time period for him. Um, he produced a lot of work. He came to uh, have a better understanding of himself, uh, We'll be talking about all these aspects, but before that, MacDonald, can you tell us a little about yourself, how you became interested in James Baldwin and how this book came about? Because I know it must have been terribly difficult to write the book in terms of resources.
0: Yeah. Yes, thank you. That's been a long journey. And I have to tell you, this year marks almost 23 years I have been working on this writer. So it is close to a quarter of a century anniversary of intense research, research that has taken me from the United States to France, to Turkey, back to France, to Harlem, to Paris. Um, it has been quite an adventure and quite um uh, discovery, a journey of discovery and a process of personal growth as well as a scholar, as a person, um, as someone who was an immigrant from Poland, who grew up under the Cold War, and literally crossed paths with Baldwin across the Atlantic Ocean. He left for Europe in 1948. I came to the United States in 1987. So we reversed directions of our journeys. And I found myself Uh, finishing my degree here and becoming an academic, and then uh, my dissertation and first book were on East European, mostly Jewish immigrant women writers, but then I was very interested in writers like Baldwin, who lived uh, in Europe, who traveled, who lived in different parts of the world uh, outside of the United States, and who wrote about his whole country from abroad. So this book happened because of a confluence of events, and I have to express thanks to colleagues uh, at the University of Michigan, uh, Fatma Mugegocek, a professor of sociology who connected me with Baldwin's Turkish friends, uh, and also Michael Kennedy and people at Bozici University, Bosphorus University in Istanbul, Um, and also, of course, my university home departments and College of Literature, Science and the Arts for their financial support for my trips and for my work. But most, of course, of the work was done by myself and my first trip to Turkey took place in 2001. um, And it was a very fruitful meeting with Engin Jazar and uh, interviewing him, his uh, then wife, um, Güli Sururi, and and their home where Baldwin actually stayed when he first arrived in Turkey in 1961. So it took a lot of research, a lot of traveling. I went to Turkey a couple more times uh, and then met and interviewed quite a few people to whom I was connected by goodwill and friendship and word of mouth as I was Connecting myself to that place and also working with um, American Turkish Research Institute, folks there have been also tremendously helpful uh, and friendly, enabling me to fly at a short notice to meet Ali Poirazolu, the actor uh, in Bodrum, who agreed to be interviewed, but then changed his mind about the location (laughs) overnight. So it's kind of a long and twisted, you know, telenovela-like story. But it also involved deep scholarship, deep reading, deep encounters and conversations with people who knew Baldwin. And who collaborated with him? Uh, remember, he directed a play uh, in 1969, um, "Düşenindos," two friend of the fallen, based on John Herbert's um, famous play "Fortune and Men's Eyes." Uh, he uh, spent on and off the decade of the 60s in Turkey. He traveled. He went back to the U.S. for periods of time, but his most important academic, I'm sorry, American works were created throughout the 60s in Turkey for that decade. So we are talking about his novel Another Country, uh, which was published in 1962. And he had a writer's block and had been trying to finish it over several years. And within three, four months in Turkey, he finished it, he (laughs) packaged it uh, to the US and it was published. The next one was The Fire Next Time. 1963, and after that he worked on his very famous play that had a run of broad on Broadway, Blues for Mr. Charlie, 1964. Then came a novel, Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone, 1968, and a collection of essays, uh, No Name in the Street, which he began in Turkey and continued in France. In between, there were smaller publications, essays in various magazines and journals and press, like the New York Times. Uh, were all, the, he also began a very important work, still unfortunately unpublished, his last play called The Welcome Table, uh, which he began writing in Turkey and then finished while living in France um, in his house in St. Paul uh, in 1987 right before dying um, so that was a long answer
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm already jealous you know you <laughs> you talked to all these people who were his friends you visited the place that he lived in in Turkey and uh, well we'll, we'll, we'll you, you touched upon a lot of my, uh, interesting points which we'll kind of try to um, unpack as we go ahead uh, let us talk about the documentary you talk about there, there's this documentary about him uh, that was made in Turkey by somebody called Sadat Pakai. Um, and that was one of the sources that I guess you use. And I would love to know if I can somehow have access to that online, because I tried to find yes. it online, but I couldn't. So it would be great if you could talk about that and then maybe tell us where we can access that. Please yes. What is the documentary Yeah,
0: So the documentary is called James Baldwin from Another Place, and it was directed by Sadat Pakai. Um Jengis Tatar was the cameraman on the job. And Hudson Filmworks, Hudson Filmworks was Sadat Pakai's company that produced and released the film. So if you look up the website for Hudson, H-U-D-S-O-N, Hudson Filmworks, um, you should find you should find a link to the film. I think they are selling DVDs. I am not sure about electronic purchases. Uh, Sadat Pakai was a good friend of mine. I was very lucky to meet him and interview him in 2002 for the first time and then was uh, very, very warmly received by him and his partner, Kathy Pakai, in in their home i was able to look at the outtakes from the film uh, get a full soundtrack of the interview recorded for that film and also i was privileged to see with sadat pakai thousands of photographs pakai took of baldwin in turkey in the united states um and literally that archive right now is available at the Beinecke Library at Yale University. So if you would like to study the film, the outtakes and the material, uh, they can be accessed through the collection at Beinecke at Yale. Um, I'm not certain of the photographs because I haven't looked them up yet. Uh, I'm certainly hoping that they have been purchased by Beinecke because they were very, very unique. And you may know that Sadat Pakai was an award-winning filmmaker and photographer. He had uh, studied with the very, very famous Walker Evans at Yale University. His degree was from there. And um, he he has a photo of James Baldwin sitting next to a samovar, a very Istanbul-like photo from the 60s, hanging at the Smithsonian in their, you know, best photography gallery. So um i am I am thrilled that I was lucky enough to meet him and interview him and learn from him as this project and my research were taking place
1: yeah you you mentioned the photographs. I must say I'm originally from Iran myself, and when I was going through the book, I saw the photographs i I could have said they were taken somewhere in Iran as well You know with with Baldwin drinking tea in a small saucer, which is very Turkish. We do it in Iran yes, as well yes next to some of our or even I saw one of his pictures who was holding like a, what we call in, in Farsi, we call it Taspi, which is like a rosary. Tasbih beads at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those languages, right? Exactly. I couldn't believe it.
0: kind of, yeah, I think it's... It's a very interesting way of looking at black writers in the world because we connect these trajectories for intellectuals, writers and artists to be stereotypically sort of between big European and American cities. So, you know, people know about Baldwin going to Paris, people know about other black writers and artists like Josephine Baker or Richard Wright, but they don't really talk about the so called second world or the the space in between where Turkey or Iran or other countries, even mm. my own uh, homeland, Poland, not to mention Ukraine fall, mm. um, even though we are much more centrally located on the map of Europe and Eurasia than, yeah. Yeah. than people realize. So, um, so I was thrilled to find those connections. And to also find how much Turkey helped Baldwin locate his work, and find his identity as a black queer man, Mm -hmm. who had to flee the United States, as he described it because of racism and homophobia. So his exile was not, let's just go and live somewhere else. It was simply, he felt he had to leave because he felt his life was in danger because of racism, because of segregation, because of run-ins he had with white people in New Jersey, in restaurants, with mobs, with police, and also homophobia. To this day, um, it's, it's a huge problem. And he felt threatened and he felt unsafe. And it was a very interesting moment for him in 1961 to find himself in Turkey and to walk the streets of Istanbul and see the affection between men and across the sort of masculine culture there, which he was very unfamiliar with. And when I interviewed and Gingazar about Baldwin's first days in Turkey. His first observation was that he could not believe how affectionate and close men were in Turkey, that they would walk holding hands, that they would embrace, that they were very publicly demonstrative about closeness and affection, which in the United States is, is taboo. And very interestingly, this is a much later find, I've been researching Baldwin's papers at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in Harlem in New York City, and I found Sadat Pakai's letters as he was a student coming to the U.S., writing Baldwin to thank him for signing an affidavit of support so he could come on a student visa to study in the U.S. in one of the letters. Sadat Pakai writes that he came to New York by the way, he was staying with Baldwin's family in Harlem for a few days before getting situated, and he said one day I'm meeting a Turkish friend. So we, you know, we embrace, we kiss each other, and suddenly people are giving us those hostile glances and being scandalized, and literally reacting in very homophobic ways. And he said he was, te- you know, he was so surprised because he said this is how we greet each other. So of course, Baldwin had just the opposite reaction (laughs) when he saw affection and closeness uh, among men in Turkey. And I think a lot of his um, work that was created there, and in my book, I look at Turkey as a dual, um, through a dual perspective as a location that is an authorial location, where Baldwin physically was writing, was creating, where he was influenced by people and culture and food and everything that was going on in material and sensual ways, but also as a lens, as a way of looking at the world through a different culture, through different sets of conduct or socialization, sociability, civility, where there is a different set of norms about gender roles and gender closeness, especially among men. And so Baldwin was um, very much influenced by this freedom and also by the ways in which he He said he was just left alone to do his work. He, unlike in France, he did not speak Turkish. He picked up enough of it to greet people and to kind of communicate on a very basic level. And later, when he was directing the play, he worked with a translator, uh, the journalist Zeynep Oral, who's a fantastic person to talk to and probably the best person to talk to about him in Turkey, uh, who's written about him in Turkey quite a bit. And he felt at home, but he also felt at a distance uh, enough to be able to do his work. And I was really interested in how the location would inflect or influence his work. And of course, I also realized Baldwin was a Westerner. He was somebody who carried a US passport, who basically had a backing of a superpower. (laughs) Uh, Turkey at the time, was a member of NATO. Uh, but it was also, you know, the the US warships were in the Bosphorus Strait. So, so Baldwin in the Sadat Pakai film talks about not being very far away from the US, no matter where you are in the world, because American power follows you everywhere. Because at the time, In Turkey, you know, everybody who's had an uncle who went to war in Korea was aware of these global conflicts and global wars that the U.S. and NATO were involved in. And and what I also found very interesting and endearing was how Baldwin learned from Turkish people. And that was not in the scholarship. That was not appreciated as much as I thought it should have been. Because literally those, you know, anecdotes of him reacting to how men treated one another in public places, but also, you know, him discovering a friend, Avni Bey, who was an older black man who had a who re, ran a bar at one of the hotels where Americans would hang out. And they struck a friendship and Baldwin would go and have drinks and chat with him. and you know, in 2007, I was lucky enough to interview Avni Bay and talk to him and take his photos, and he remembered Baldwin. So, so in a sense, you know, those acquaintances and friendships that normally biographers or literary critics don't pay attention to, I found them as nourishing, as important to how Baldwin as a person, as an author, functioned, but also grew and developed his thinking and changed his thinking while in Turkey.
1: You, you talked about a number of his friends. I'm particularly interested in, um, I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly, Engin Cezar, right?
0: Engin uh, Cezar. Mm-hmm.
1: Cezar yes. Yeah. So tell us about the first day Baldwin arrived in Turkey, went to his place, and Engin Cezar was among the of the celebrity circle or the elite yes. circle in turkey so tell us a little about him first they had baldwin arrived in turkey about him and sur Golriz, his wife and and how they helped baldwin to get into that intellectual and artistic circle in turkey
0: so baldwin had met and in new york city so Jezar was a graduate of Yale Drama School, was an actor mm-hmm. and actually played Giovanni in a theatrical adaptation of Giovanni's Room Absolutely. that was produced uh, by Actors Studio in New York City. So they had known each other in New York and had some history as close friends. And then um, Engin had been inviting Baldwin to come over for almost three years. and I trace this through their correspondence. And finally, as was usually the case with him, Baldwin just showed up one night, having <laughs> come back from his tour of Africa and Israel, and he just sort of knocked at Engin's door one evening. And they ha- they were having a party to celebrate his marriage to Gilrys Sururi. So Engin Jazar had almost everyone who was a very important cultural figure and celebrity in Turkey at the time in his living room. And onto that scene walks Baldwin, very jet-lagged and very tired, <laughs> who um, immediately charmed people and met everyone, uh, including Jevat Japan, who was a cousin of Engin's and who was a prominent academic and poet and intellectual um, with whom they struck a friendship. And I remember Engin telling me, you know, Baldwin was so tired, he just like fell with his, fell asleep with his head in in the lap of a famous actress. And then uh, he stayed with them in that apartment. Um, And they had a spare bedroom where he would write. And so the first weeks he spent there and then he moved to another place. Uh, to Dzevat Chapan's house in Bebek, and uh, he finished his uh, novel, Another Country, there. And that's where he also met his future biographer, David Leeming, the author of the p- perhaps best-known biography uh, published in 94. So now I would like to tell you more about who Baldwin also was, was hanging out with in, in, mm-hmm. in Istanbul. So Enginz Zazar and Gilriz Sururi, were married and they also owned a theater where they performed plays uh in, in which they were both involved as actors and directors. And um they also connected Baldwin to people like uh, the Kurdish writer Yashar Kemal with whom Baldwin struck a friendship and even though they did not have a language in common they were very close friends and communicated by singing. And Kemal would teach Baldwin some songs in Turkish, and Baldwin would teach Kemal some psalms, some gospel, you know, religious songs in English. And Kemal was a very tall, big man, whereas Baldwin was kind of tiny and petite. So they were an odd, uh, you know, odd couple, but a very, very uh, close friends and, and they actually met again shortly before Baldwin died. Both were invited to the Soviet Union by Mikhail Gorbachev in 1986, to a very first is a cool forum that brought intellectuals and um, writers, artists and scientists from all over the world. And that was their last time. And Baldwin and Yashar Kemal remembered the songs they had sung in Istanbul in the 60s and sang them again in Kyrgyzia during the Soviet Union Forum. (laughs) So uh, and then a year later, Baldwin was dead. So I just wanted to mention that the Turkish connections lasted throughout his lifetime. Another important person was Gurli's sururi baldwin had many women friends and uh formed very close friendships with women uh and Gurli's remembered him very fondly and showed me a beautiful turquoise necklace that baldwin gave her and she would keep it at in a bowl by the door to the apartment saying that she felt protected by it and that she always had dreams about baldwin um and that they they basically felt like they were a family. Um, so that was a very close connection. Another person I mentioned, Zeynep Oral, who was a very young journalist at the time, feminist journalist, um, and served as Baldwin's translator during the production of the play uh, for Gurlis and Engin's theater. So Zeynep Oral um, was also a very close friend, Uh, with Baldwin and uh, interviewed him for a local newspaper, um, and then sort of witnessed his efforts as the play was prepared and staged. And the play was a huge event in terms of the history of Turkish theater, because it was about a prison a juvenile delinquency prison and also took on issues of violence and sexual violence about inmates um also sort of trans and drag performance and literally it was shut down by the government which created even more publicity so after uh that baldwin and the actors they they were always sort of in the limelight but you need to understand at the time, theater was sort of like being a rock star, being a famous theater personality in Turkish culture at the time was like being a the hugest celebrity. So Baldwin and his friends would appear in the pages of magazines and cultural reviews. And um, he was interviewed by Jeb Dergizi, one of the very important papers. And uh and then the film was also made to you know to commemorate his time in Istanbul. So that Bakay's film.
1: Can, can you tell us uh about his perception, let's say conception of Turkey? What I mean is that he found Turkey to be a liberating space for his artistic experimentations and also for understanding both his racial identity as an African American and also his sexual identity. And and a lot of people might find it uh kind of surprising that how he came into terms with these things in Turkey because it's a muslim country anyway there there, there might be some backlash against you know homosexuality can, can you tell us about his uh, experience in those terms in Turkey
0: so uh, from what I've heard from interviewing Baldwin's friends and read in his works and interviews and uh, also his documentation, the papers at the Schomburg that I've been recently researching, he found it a liberating place because it was unfamiliar also because it was, in a sense, a transitory, a liminal place between Europe and Asia, because it was indeed that second world, that sort of entity that no one paid much attention to um, that, you know, that he also didn't know much about. So when he first found himself there, he was very much a Western tourist. And in a way, as he told Sadat Pakai in their long interview, from which the soundtrack for the film was excerpted, he loved being among people who were not Western, who were hospitable, who had a very vibrant culture, who were also curious and um, diverse in their own way. And it's hard for me to explain this, perhaps to Western or English speaking folks, how, how that works. But, you know, there are darker skinned people in Turkey and what Baldwin called after being in Turkey for a while, the kind of color wheel, color wheel of ethnicity, of racial identity in Europe works very differently than in the United States or even the U.K., I really wouldn't know about Australia, so I I, I can't say, but uh, his understanding of how people viewed him and how he viewed them was dramatically changed. So, for example, yes, there there are dark-skinned people or African-origin people in Turkey, but Turks themselves are not understood as sort of white in the same way that white Anglo-Saxon Protestants are considered white. So Baldwin, you know, found himself attracted to both people who had very little, who were very poor, uh, whom he would encounter in the streets, who would be selling groceries, who would be carrying burdens, who would be selling food or tea in the streets. And he would often, and Sadat Pakai took photos of those moments, he would sort of Um, encounter them and say hello and um, and in a way connect to them because he came from impoverished black Americans in Harlem and he found that a bit of a connection even though it was the opposite end of the world. Another thing that he liked a lot, excuse me, was in the 1960s, Istanbul was a very secular city. So in some ways, and perhaps it's hard to understand given today's political realities in Turkey and who's in charge, right? Uh, But then um, literally in some ways, and I had this on authority of not just Baldwin's friends, but people like Canton Keith, who worked for a US information agency, who was a cultural attache in Istanbul. I talked to him. I talked to his former wife, uh, Brenda, Keith, later Brenda Rhine, who was a typist for Baldwin and who also worked and kind of raised her children in Turkey. And they said, you know, the culture was very secular. Yes, you still had people who were covered up and who were practicing Muslims. At the same time, people drank whiskey and people had parties and uh, theater, uh, music. These were sort of rock star celebrities. Uh, people loved being out, being about. So the sociability. And the openness and curiosity about others and the generosity with which for example Jevat chapan the poet the the friend of baldwin's helped him revise another country he read the book because he spoke very good english he helped him find a conclusion so there were these intellectual friendships and these um connections Through culture, through arts, especially through theater and literature that Baldwin loved and that he really thrived on. And I think that really helped him feel a sense of confidence and a sense of both being left alone to do his work so that he really could. And in the film, in Sadat Pakay's film, he says, I cannot work in the U.S. because I am so busy, you know, all my family are there, friends are there, I cannot really focus. In Turkey, he had that space. At the same time, he also had the sociability and acceptance of the, you know, bohemian intellectual circles in which he moved. So obviously, when he met the artist, uh, Zeki Muren, who was famous for his drag performances, um, they, you know, they connected on on this level as perhaps queer people could connect at the time. And nobody raised an eyebrow because that was sort of the, the way the Bohemian artistic circle of people worked. He was also connected to many intellectuals, teachers and theater personalities at Robert College, which was the former Methodist missionary school, later became Bozici University, Bosphorus University in Istanbul. So through that circle, he also met a lot of people like John Freely, uh, like his family, Tony Greenwood. He also met um, actors. and students because he would teach some classes with david leeming who was uh, teaching english there and, and american literature so i think he was almost like living on a on another planet where he was cherished and left alone to do his work but he was like a sponge soaking in information and newness and exciting impulses that inspired his work. And when I reread Another Country, his third novel, in light of it having been written in Turkey, I found moments of, let's say, quote, unquote, orientalist influence. So there are references to um, imagery that could be considered orientalist with some of the erotic sceneries or evocations of a harem or evocations of a Turkish bath when one of the lovers takes a bath. There are sort of throwaway references like that. But there is a very important scene when one of the main characters in another country is returning to New York City. And suddenly he is seeing that city arriving on a boat, seeing it as if it's an Eastern city as if it's Istanbul, or as if it's seen through the screen of having seen other places. And I think that perspective much more than even having been to France, helped Baldwin understand that the world is bigger than the West, and that he can learn from people who are not Western, and who have been caught in between the superpowers, especially when you think of the Cold War, What he's writing about in The Fire Next Time and the sort of standoff between the Soviet Union and the United States and how the second world, like the Soviet bloc countries, but also Turkey and also the Middle East were caught up in between those two. And I think it it helped him understand the geopolitics and also the sort of regular people's lives and the importance of those to his stories when he was living there
1: reading the book looking at the pictures listening to you and I would be willing to like to give up 10 years of my life just to be one year in <laughs> Turkey in that time with with Baldwin yes. you know and that yes. artistic bohemian circle living there and uh when I first realized that you know when I first learned that he lived in Turkey for 10 years and you know he had this really creative time there I wanted to think or naively I wanted to think well he was maybe like it was American modernist writers, you know, Hemingway, Fitzgerald in Paris. But And I was really uh, pleasantly surprised when I came across that part in your book, that he considered himself to be an exile, not an expatriate. So you wouldn't really consider him. And he kind of distanced himself from, from Hemingway or Fitzgerald.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, very talk about much that. so. Yeah.
1: Can, can you talk about that? Because that's a fascinating yes. part of his career that very few people have talked about. <laughs>
0: Yes. And you know, there is a lovely piece uh, Baldwin published in the New York Times, I believe in 1962. It is called As Much Truth As One Can Bear, As Much Truth As One Can Bear. And it's a piece on him positioning himself within post-World War II literature. And of course, it is after he has started living in Turkey. And again, that decade in Turkey was on and off. He would come back and stay for a year or a year and a half or a few months and then go back to the US or go to London to visit, you know, to give talks to, he was very famous in the 60s. So there was quite a bit of traveling. But that was a place where he always regrouped and always found that peace and harmony to do his work. So he lived first in rooms with friends and then when his money came in after the fire next time especially he would rent very posh houses and places like uh pasha's library house which was a beautiful villa in the roomly hisar area uh, overlooking the bosphorus uh you know with gorgeous uh gorgeously appointed place with a garden and behind high walls and he and his entourage would have a wonderful time there and um I'm sorry, I lost track of the main conception uh, of your question. That Yeah, was... it was
1: like he he was not an expatriate and he was an exon and he distanced himself from the likes of Hemingway and
0: Fitzgerald. Yes. So, so I started talking about it because we have this notion of modernist writers like mm-hmm. Hemingway or Fitzgerald. We, you know, we can think of also Gertrude Stein in Paris. Gertrude Stein, who actually taught Hemingway how to write, let's not forget that. So it was a queer Jewish woman who gave him his writerly chops. I need to put this on the table. And and Baldwin wrote in this piece uh, as much truth as one can bear, that after World War II there is need for new American literature and that people like Faulkner and Hemingway of Fitzgerald were very nice and he still appreciated the literature, but he thought there was time for new characters for new narrative models and for new ways of writing especially writing fiction so that piece and his many essays and of course his novels are proof that he was practicing what he was talking about show us his desire to create writing that took all humans and turn them into complex characters, regardless of race and regardless of gender, regardless of sexuality. And this endeavor I find find very telling because Baldwin rebelled against being classified as at the time they would say the Negro writer, so someone who is defined by the race. And his first novel, which was a very autobiographic novel about growing up, in Harlem, in in a Pentecostal church with a very strict father, that novel sort of set him up for being described as the Negro writer. So his second novel, Giovanni's Room, is an absolute 180, 180 turn away from this. It's about a white American man who falls in love with a italian man a southern italian man in paris so so when baldwin wrote the second novel he was accused of trying to shoot himself in the foot they said nobody would publish this but i find that in this insistence of saying yes i am a black writer and i've written this first novel that now you all think will classify me as forever writing about blacks in harlem Let me show you. I'm writing a novel, which is sort of a modernist novel in Giovanni's room about white, white people, although, again, this is a very deep and serious book, and it is about race, it is about homophobia, it's also about blackness, even though all the characters are supposedly white. So in that sense, by writing his books, and also articulating his need for new literature, that is not only misplacing or displacing or providing an alternative to the Fitzgerald's and Hemingway's, but also he wrote somewhat against the sort of Negro novel into which he was slotted as a writer into this genre, into this authorship model, he was slotted. And, you know, when Richard Wright's very famous novel, Uh, Native Son was published in 1931, Baldwin criticized that novel and in a way distanced himself from writing where black people were seen as victimized by their social circumstances and he felt this was too sentimental too almost today we would say binary in its approach to race and in, in its approach to identity So in response to that, in another country, the novel that bears this very clear Turkish imprint, he creates a black character who dies, who is, as Baldwin refers to him, Rufus Scott, the black floating corpse in the national consciousness, but who also is an agent of his own demise, who creates circumstances by victimizing his white lover, by abusing and basically destroying her, that also lead him to suicide. So he creates a character who, yes, is victimized by racism, but who's also aware that as a man, he has power over a woman, that as a man, he also has power over his destiny to some degree. And I think Turkey was really helpful because it was so remote and he he was allowed that sort of space to really think about what he wanted to write and how he wanted his characters to be. And because his friends taught him much about the ways that, for example, you know, Turkish proverbs and philosophy work. Um, I remember Baldwin talked about the water wheel many times, and I couldn't understand it until I was told by Sadat Pakai that. The waterwheel metaphor, as Engin Jazar was talking to Baldwin and then Sadat Pakai explained it to me, is connected to a Turkish proverb that sometimes you are up, sometimes you are down. But sort of like a wheel of fortune, your fate can change. And, you know, in English, we can say, you know, life turns on a dime. Uh, we have sort of associations with the wheel of fortune. But there, I think he really embraced certain imagery and certain cultural even spatial, even decorative aspects. You know, think of the tile on the walls of mosques. Think of the designs of carpets uh, on which people were praying. Uh, Think of the Tespi beads and his need to handle them. So all of that, I think, came together in terms of material culture and influence and inflection um, on his work and also his understanding of himself, who he wanted to be, And how he wanted to live and he very much wanted to buy a house and settle in turkey but then there were logistical issues with his closeness to his family and publishers and then um he decided to go to france instead and i think as he was getting older not speaking the language was also one of the issues
1: um let's talk about his artistic work he you talked about the play Fortune, uh, Fortune, Men's Eyes. I was wondering if this play is available in any format, and also, well, how was it received in Turkey, and and also the unpublished play that he had, the Welcome Table, which in a way is also the story of the the journey of a writer, revolution of himself, maybe as a writer. Maybe you could talk about these two works a bit.
0: So Baldwin um, <clears throat> loved the theater. And he wrote, um, his first play he wrote in 1953, it was called The Amen Corner, and to this day it's been staged. Mm -hmm. Um, It's about a store from church in Harlem and a female minister who kind of goes through a crisis of consciousness. The second play was Blues for Mr. Charlie, which takes place in a divided parabolic American town, divided, segregated. And it's very much about the civil rights movement and echoes the murder of Emmett Till in 1955. The third play was uh, The Welcome Table. And Enid Baldwin wanted to show something that he hasn't tried before. He was very much inspired by Anton Chekhov, by the Russian playwright and short story writer. And he wanted to create a a drawing room drama, A, a, a drama where one house and one night and a group of people come to important conclusions about their lives and their characters. And in that play, what happened was the welcome table that Baldwin created as he was preparing actors to act in Fortune and Men's Eyes, or Dusen Indostu, as it was translated into Turkish, that kind of welcome table um, concept was created during rehearsal or pre rehearsal, actually. So, what Baldwin did, he sat down with actors for two, three weeks, and they had a literary seminar discussing the play, discussing the characters, philosophizing about them. Uh, with the translator Zeynep Oral. Um, And in, there is a beautiful brochure produced about the play, where Baldwin gives an interview about it. And he also wrote a treatment for each of the characters, almost like a blueprint for each of the characters that he gave to the actors and said, you now need to become this person. So you know that those meetings around the table where they would discuss the play discuss the characters before they even got on stage and began rehearsing that was the exciting space and that was where the idea of the welcome table and the title comes from a spiritual from a black spiritual song Um, I shall feast at the welcome table. So there are these sort of references to Baldwin's time in the church and him being a teenage preacher and kind of having that music always at the back of his mind. So that idea from Turkey, then he took with him uh, to France and he was working on the play, The Welcome Table, on and off for quite a few decades, couple of decades. And then closer to the end, he befriended a theater director, Walter Dallas, who was the director of the Freedom Theater in Philadelphia, a black man, a very talented director, uh, whom Baldwin invited to contribute to the play, to help him rewrite it, edit it. The play, The Welcome Table, takes place in a house very much like Baldwin's house in the south of France. So that's that's the house (laughs) this second book is about. And In this play, the main character is a Creole female singer, somebody who who could be a Josephine Baker, who could be Nina Simone, who could be Eartha Kitt. A female character, because at that time in his life, Baldwin very much was interested in women, also took on a more kind of effeminate persona himself with jewelry and silk scarves. And um, he just was very, very much enamored of glamorous women, especially black women like Maya Angelou or Toni Morrison and these performers like Josephine Baker, who actually he hosted at his house at some point. So... That main character, the female character, an aging singer and celebrity and a star, has people in her house visiting, talking, and we have the shift of perspective from one conversation to another. And through those conversations in clusters, we get to know various characters and life circumstances of, of the characters in the play. And what's so important is that the house is almost a character in and by itself, as a setting, as kind of a breathing family seat, family nest. And I mention this because I think it's important to notice that Baldwin didn't have models of domesticity to rely on as a Black queer writer and someone who traveled and changed places so much. And only... In the last 16 years of his life, in St. Paul de Vance, in that house, did he find and kind of create a household that was unique, where people were supposed to behave gently towards each other, where uh, when he was very ill, he did not hire female nurses. He required men to do all those jobs that women normally do, tending to bodies, tending to the sick um and i think that play is in a way his last testament as an author and it's a shame it hasn't been published um even though baldwin decided it was finished it might be a bit too long to be staged you know people can say maybe it needed to be edited further but i did talk to walter dallas the co-author and he said no we finished it baldwin was ready to have it published the play had a reading at Freedom Theatre with students of Walter Dallas's uh, at the University of the Arts um, in Philadelphia. So there was a reading at which Baldwin was present and that was videotaped. The play in Istanbul that kind of led to the welcome table metaphor, Fortune and Men's Eyes, that play unfortunately was not um, video recorded. It was not preserved in any way outside of photos. Charles Adelson, who was an American journalist living in Istanbul, wrote a piece on the play for Ebony magazine. So there is a large piece describing it in detail. But I have not been able to get any outside of photographs from from the play and photographs that Engin are let me see uh, any other documentation of the play? So I only have descriptions from People who were there, who took part in it, who were actors.
1: And uh, what happened to James Bond? Why did he leave Turkey? It seemed that he had a quite a, was doing quite well there. He was very well received. Then he leaves Turkey and he goes to France.
0: Well, some of it had to do with his uh, failing health. Um, he felt he needed to be closer to hospitals and medical facilities. That I think. Perhaps he trusted more. I have no idea exactly. Uh, At the end of the film, Sadat Pakai's film, James Baldwin from Another Place, there is that lovely scene of Baldwin sitting on a chair drinking tea in this very beautiful Turkish glass, and he's flanked by two waiters. And Sadat Pakai said, look, they are sitting in Bebek in a tea house, and these two penguins, those waiters, and then the camera pans out, and you see the crowd of onlookers like a circle of men mostly staring at them because that was a spectacle as they were filming. And Baldwin says, I've got to finish the book and I've got to get out of Istanbul. And I think the idea was that he was restless. He was somebody who constantly changed places and who was driven by this almost nomadic impulse to go and find a new place. And in a sense, I think, because he did not buy a house and perhaps because he still was hoping to find somebody a partner to settle with and to have a family with um he left he left and and he got very ill in 1971 so friends directed him to Saint Paul de Vance because the south was much cheaper than Paris and at first he started at a hotel where it was very expensive but then there was a house almost across the street that an old lady uh, who was an Algerian colonist, meaning a Noir, a person who, you know, was a French colonial <laughs> in Algeria, and therefore racist and not very friendly. But she was renting rooms, and Baldwin started renting a room, then another room, and before long, he was renting the whole house from her. And at first she barricaded herself against him and then she fell in love with him because he completely charmed her. Um, And, you know, and then he slowly, piece by piece, was buying the house from her. So, So that was how he ended up in France. And even though he had always lived in big cities and considered himself to be this urbane city guy, suddenly he fell in love with this, you know, 18th century, farmhouse that gave rise to this house in which he was that used to be a functioning farm. Um, And he had a big garden with oranges with, you know, on a mountain side, you could see the Mediterranean, because that's the French Alps. Um, And he just fell in love with that location. So in an interesting way, he kind of needed a very peaceful and village like setting and that was another decade after turkey the 70s and and 80s until 87 when he died so the last 16 years of his life
1: Mm.
0: where he produced a lot he produced a lot and very very interesting works as well Um, and i can say perhaps closer to to conclusion of our conversation that the further away he got from the united states the more interesting the work he was producing <laughs> uh, paradoxically enough but I, I i think as he says you know in in Pake's film one one sees it better from a distance from another place you when you're in america you have nothing to compare america to but in other places you gain a perspective and you also gain a certain kind of freedom and independence and safety that he really craved and couldn't have uh in the United States
1: mm. uh, just for our listeners uh I've kind of secured a promise for Magdalena to talk about uh, her other book which is uh which is about James Baldwin's 10 years of uh, of stay in France. And Mike Dylan, I know that you're working on another project about Baldwin. So, as a last question, can you briefly tell us what that work is about?
0: Yes. So, quickly, uh, this book that came out in 2018, Me and My House, uh, James Baldwin's last decade in France, is about those years right after Turkey, when Baldwin took the play The Welcome Table that was in a draft form, just began, and then relocated to the south of France and began his life and created his Black queer household there. So this book talks about those last 16 years, how he put together his experience of travel, his experience of living in Turkey, and then in this village in the south of France, where he was the one and only black person uh, for miles and miles around. And and yet where he found a home, where he found love of people uh, who lived there, very close friends, whose children grew up with him. Uh, And I also went there and interviewed it. I also documented the remnants of that house uh, because Baldwin had um, his younger brother, who was his manager, later lived in the house after Baldwin had passed. And he uh, asked his his, uh, partner, his lover, Jill Hutchinson, to save whatever could be saved from the house. So that's how I ended up taking thousands of photos of books and magazines and artwork that survived uh, the demolition of that house, and then can can be now looked up in a digital collection, and also in a small exhibit uh, through the Museum of African American History and Culture. And then the last project, I think this is the last project (laughs) on Baldwin I'm working on, is a Biography for a general audience that I'm writing for a series uh, called Black Lives uh, through University through Yale University Press, and this book is in progress. Uh, I finished the first uh, couple of drafts, and I'm waiting for some feedback to continue revisions. And um, crossing fingers, it will be out for Baldwin's 100th birthday in 2024.
1: Professor Magdalena Zabrowska, thank you very much for this fascinating conversation. I enjoyed every single minute of it.
0: Thank you so much for having me. And I'm honored and really, really pleased we could meet each other uh, via screens and uh, very proud to be able to contribute to your podcast and to the book series uh, or to the books that you are discussing through your website. I'm very honored. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I'm looking forward to speaking with you soon again about Baldwin.